Hey everybody, this is Fede Alvarez, wishing all the listeners of the Perfect Organist podcast a happy Alien Day. When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're going to care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? You really think they're going to let you interfere with their plans for this thing? They think we're... we're crud. And they don't give a fuck about one friend of yours that's... that's died. Not one. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. You're listening to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Christian Matska, Andy Geek Girl. Welcome to the show, everyone. And today we are here to interview a special guest, Sarah Welch Larson, talking about her book, Becoming Alien. And welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be able to talk about Alien at length for the first time in a hot minute. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. Um, and actually, I wanted to kind of pass this off to Christian because Christian, you're sort of the the way you're the person responsible for the show kind of taking shape. And how did how did you come across this book? Well, a friend of mine posted a picture of the cover saying I'm about to start reading this book. And the dippy bird grabbed me. I said, hold on, whoever wrote this, that's a deep cut. Someone knows what they're talking about. And so I said to my friend, hey, you know, what did you think? And they didn't write back. So I said, all right, I'm going to buy the book. I'll read it. And then I can have my own opinion. And I couldn't wait for the book to arrive. So I Googled Sarah's name. And what came up was this amazing article, or not an article, but a piece you wrote about Alien 3 mm-hmm. and women's bodies and how Alien 3 is the most... Ripley's femininity is is in the forefront in that film. Not only did I love that piece, but I I love the the piece of artwork that went with it, sort of a watercolor of of Ripley in the cryo tube with the with a broken glass. And so then the book arrived, and I was like a, a chapter into it, and I was I was writing these guys like you've got to read this book. We all have to read this book because this is the kind of discussion that we like to have. Well, okay, our discussion is slightly below you. Like you're, you're using the big words, but <laughs> The idea of not just saying, ha ha, aren't those guns cool? Or doesn't the alien look cool? But like, what does this mean? How do these these themes play out over the course of the whole series? And I felt like, to be totally honest, you know, you made some connections with later films, uh, Resurrection On, that I hadn't seen and that gave me a better appreciation mm-hmm. of not only where they fit in, but I don't know, um, the, the way that both Alien 3 and, and Re- Resurrection rewrite the previous film's ending that so that three sort of sets up for her to do that. I don't know. I just, I was very impressed. Thank you. So I reached out to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into your book, I would like to find out and you know, if anyone else has questions, how are you? What's your relationship with the Alien films? When did that begin for you? 
Oh my gosh. Um, I think I've been always aware of the Alien movies, but I wasn't really a horror person growing up at all. So the first Alien I saw was actually Aliens on TNT back when like TNT would play it all of the time, I think. Um, so I knew going into the, f- the very first Alien movie that like Ripley was going to survive and that she was going to have to face down the Xenomorph again. Um, but the first time I saw Alien... I had been out babysitting and my family had done a family movie night where they had all watched Alien together and I wasn't included in it. And they had to like return the DVD to the library or something. So I was like, screw it. It's like 10 p.m. I'm a teenager. I'm going to stay up late and I'm going to watch this movie. Ideal first watching conditions, I think, uh, because it was like 10 at night in the dark literally alone in my parents giant house and like when i was done with the movie i was just flipping all of the lights on and as as i was walking back from the tv room uh to my own bedroom um and then it just sort of lay dormant for a while so i've always been a sci-fi person my parents are huge sci-fi people like i grew up watching things like mystery science theater 3000 and things like that um but didn't end up watching any of the other alien movies until probably the end of college um went through the quadrilogy, actually bailed on Alien 4 uh, because of a gross out death fairly early on. There's a moment where like one guy gets like the back of his head bit out and like he holds a piece of his own brain. And I kept thinking it was going to cut away and it wasn't cutting away and it wasn't cutting away. And I was like, screw this, I'm cutting. And I turned off the TV and I was done with it. Um, So, I, I mean, I watched them on and off occasionally and like kind of kept coming back to the series because I kept finding it like very compelling. Um. And then the film magazine that I write for, uh, Brightwall Dark Room, Christian, this is where you found this article, had a call for essays about the body. Um, and that's where the idea for writing about Alien 3 came from in terms of body horror and what it's like to be like a, a female person in a female body in a very male-dominated space. Um, so that kind of made me fall in love with the series all over again. And then a couple of years later... Actually, it may have been just less than a year later. Um, my editor for the book reached out to me and asked if I was interested in writing about something that involved uh, theology and science fiction. Um, and I took a little while to think about it and then pitched him the idea on um, just trying to reunify all six alien movies into something that's a little bit more cohesive through a feminist theological lens. Um, and I'm very lucky that he accepted it. And that's how Becoming Alien sort of uh, came into place. And then for the last couple of years, I've basically just been that person who's always yelling about alien on Twitter, uh, which is a really fun place to be, as I'm sure all of you all know. <laughs> well, now that you mentioned, I'm tra- I'm curious as to what some of those conversations on Twitter have been like, what do you find yourself yelling into the void about the most? Uh, Mostly how great alien covenant is, uh, which I recognize (laughs) is a controversial opinion. Um, But I saw that movie and uh, sort of fell in love with it because it's also like, it's not just an alien movie. It's also a Frankenstein movie. And Um, there's a lot going on there with like the personhood of androids, which is very much my bag. And then the way that it ended was actually like an alternate ending to how Ridley Scott originally wanted to end the very first alien movie. Like one of the ideas they were kicking around was that the Xenomorph was going to get Ripley and then make that final recording using her voice. So when alien covenant ended with basically the exact same ending, I was like, Oh my God, the bastard totally did it. And he got away with it and they let him do it. Um, so I kind of fell in love with it and then went back and then, I don't know, just 
he's such an incredible visual artist that that's just it's it's a movie that I'll go to the mat for just because on a technical level it's absolutely gorgeous. So even even if bits and pieces don't necessarily cohere all that well and like some of the characters aren't as memorable as some of the other characters in earlier movies, I just love Alien Covenant. So I, I will go to bat for it on Twitter any day of the week. I would just like to state two things for the record. First off, I did not prompt that, whatever. That was an Andy question that teed her up to talk about how great Covenant is, because Covenant, I, I I have gone to the Met many times in that movie as well, and for all of its blemishes, I think it's a really brilliant piece of, of philosophical filmmaking. Um, but the other thing I want to say is we've gone too far into this episode without officially wishing Jamie a happy birthday, so I want to make sure we do that on air. Today's Jamie's birthday, and I wanted to make sure we get that in there. Going back, though, to Sarah, um, this book has been absolutely fantastic to read through. And something that kept coming up to me as I was reading it, uh, you're welcome, was how lucidly you explain very complicated concepts that Mm. I think a lot of fans out there might not, you know, we're not all well-versed in theological feminism, for example, right? But I felt like by the end of the book, I had a pretty firm grounding in what you were talking about. And um, so I want to commend you on that. And I also want to say, how does this fit into your larger academic career? Does this, is this something Mm -hmm. that's similar to other work that you've done? Or was this kind of like a new experience for you? Um, I mean, a project on this scale, definitely new. I've I've never written anything book length before or since. Um, In terms of writing, I I like looking for the theological truth in a lot of the things that I'm, I'm engaging with. So I host a podcast of my own. It's called Seeing and Believing, and it's, it's a weekly film review podcast. And the point of the podcast is not to like, I don't know, count curse words or try to like sort of mash whatever movie we're talking about into like a Christian perspective, although it is an explicitly Christian podcast. What we're really looking for is just looking for like, where does this align with something that we believe? Where might it not? And then how do we grapple with that art on its own terms through the lens that we're viewing this this art through? So for this book in particular, um, I was really looking for a theologian to engage with whose work I was kind of personally wrestling with that could help elucidate the alien movies for me. And then also hopefully like one where the alien movies would also help um, elucidate her work uh, in particular. So the theologian in question is uh, Dr. Catherine Keller. um, And I'm mostly dealing with one of her books called um, Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming, which is basically just like a challenge to a lot of widely accepted um, points about how the universe was created essentially. And then like once, once you have like a model of how the universe was created, you can sort of build models of, of evil and living and what does it even mean to be human from there. And the way that she challenges that is to say that like chaos is not a bad thing. Once you once you start at that point, you start getting into models of evil being not chaos and not violence, but denying like the createdness of other beings. And that takes you in some pretty interesting places. So that's that thread has sort of been going through a lot of my work, um, just a little bit less explicitly than this, I think. Um, but I'm always trying to find like, well, what, what are the things that are being said in whatever piece of art that ring true to me? And then why is that the case? And maybe interrogating those a little bit. Sorry, I feel like I started rambling there. 
Uh, rambling is what you're here to do tonight. So you Sweet. ramble all you want to. That's that's kind of our bag. Don't worry Excellent. about it. Excellent. Good. What you just said, though, hits on one of my favorite parts early on in the book when you tried to define what evil is in the alien movies and recognizing that the corporation is just as evil technically as the as the creature is. And, and so therefore, what what's what's a definition that can encompass both of those? Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So and this this is probably like a little bit of a peek behind the counter as well. So when I was first kicking around the idea for this book, I was thinking of evil just as being nothing. Um, I think I mentioned in the introduction, um, a, a concept of nothing. That's like a Karl Barth concept. He's a uh, concept. He's a theologian. He's not a theologian. I understand particularly well, which was why it was like probably a little too ambitious for me to try to tackle his work. I'm not a theologian myself. Um, but, uh, I was reading and reading and like what he, what he was saying wasn't quite lining up with what it was that I was trying to say. And I really didn't want to like twist his words. And then my husband handed me a book by Dr. Keller and said, Hey, like you're engaging with a lot of these thoughts. Like, let me know what you think of this. Um, my husband has an MDiv, so he is actually qualified to talk about a lot of these things. Um, and so, the concept of evil that she's working with is this idea of, well, if everything has been created from chaos, chaos is a source of possibility. And then once something has been created, it's been literally put into relationship with the other things around it, whether that's like a living sentient being like a human or somebody else, or just like the physical objects around you, everything is in relation with each other. And then once you start denying those relationships with other things, that's where you start getting into the concept of evil, because then you're denying the inherent created worth of those things and their relationships with each other as well. And that concept of evil really rhymes beautifully, I think, with the alien movies, because the alien is essentially denying the personhood of everybody that it comes into contact with by, you know, covering their faces and then turning them into um, incubators for its young. But it also gets at this sort of evil that the company sort of perpetuates all throughout the movie or throughout all of the movies, really. Um, And then also not just the company, but um, the United Systems uh, Navy in Alien Resurrection, and then even just the individual choices to enact evil on each other. Like Burke, I think, is the slimiest character in the entire series. And it's purely because he doesn't give a rip about anybody else um, around him. He's just out there to make profit. And I I think Ripley makes a pretty good point when she talks about how like the aliens aren't out there fucking each other for a goddamn percentage. Um, but Burke is, and it's purely because he does know the worth of the people around him. And he chooses to see that worth in dollar signs, as opposed to like, these are actual human beings around. I love the moment when he tries to gaslight Ripley. Like, did you ever consider that maybe the ship didn't exist? Yeah. (laughs) She's the reason you know about the ship. And you mm-hmm. just don't care. You you know, all these people were expendable. He's such a so. scumbag. Yeah. And I, I hate that he kind of belittles her every single time he's trying to appear helpful too. like he calls her kiddo a lot, which I just mm-hmm. resent completely. Um, and then he talks about how, like, it's great that she's finding work in the docks, like <laughs> in a position <laughs> that she was well overqualified for. Um, yeah, I hate him. I love to hate him. Paul Reiser does a great job as that character. He has no sense of uh, of personal space either. He's always standing too close to her. That's just exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought about that detail. Yeah. As I was uh, processing like the idea of evil, I don't personally believe in evil. I think that mm. everything is a people. Every, I think that um, what we see is a product of brokenness. 
Hmm. Um, or certainly what's going on in the Alien series is an arm of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that can certainly be horribly negative, also incredibly positive at the hmm. same time. In fact, um, the newest or the, not this current um, arc of Marvel's Alien, but the last one got into that a little bit where they're, they're talking about the company, Wayland Yutani, doing great things for these people, but also doing horrible things at the same time. I'm curious to hear your perspective. I mean, and I know that we've been, or you've been dropping the word evil. What do you mean when you say evil? I don't look at things in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, do you mean, like, I definitely think capitalism as it's on display in the alien films, no doubt. I mean, 100%. they want these, they want these creatures at any cost. And whether it's the, the crew of the Nostromo, whether it's the Marines and aliens or, you know, the worst of humanity, which are, the prisoners of Alien 3. Um, capitalism doesn't care. Capitalism wants what it wants. We see that iterating today, whether mm -hmm. it's in um, other countries that are rich in oil or rich in stuff that we want. We might go in there or corporations might go in there and do some nice things. But at the end of the day, we see the reports. We see the documentaries of what they actually did. DuPont in our own country, mm -hmm. you know, infamously responsible for horrible horrible things at the cost of making money mm -hmm. um and even and that definitely has a shade of evilness to it for sure but i don't think i think the further you are removed from actual experiences of other people that isn't your own experience the easier it is to exact upon them things that you're not experiencing because it doesn't matter you don't see them you're in an office you're making a rule or making guidelines and i feel like that's kind of what Wayland Yutani, I mean, certainly in Nostromo, crew expendable. You can't get more, mm -hmm. you know, specific than that. They don't give one shit. Mm -hmm. But the term evil to me is fraught. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what, what, what really you mean. Or maybe you just mean it. I, I do mean evil. Um, and I mean specifically evil as being a form of exploitation. And then that also like dehumanizing of other people. So, um the crew expendable line kind of like encapsulates all of that for me because it essentially takes the crew of the Nostromo and says, these people are not really people in our eyes. They're tools to get us what we want. And what we want is profits. And what we want is this alien that we can turn into a bioweapon and then continue to profit off of. I don't see anything good in that at all. Um, I see only the potential for death and destruction and the ruin of, of, potentially infinite lives um, and something that should never happen. Um, so I, I'm pretty firmly on the side of like, yeah, there's evil out there um, and it can be enacted on somebody else, like whether or not it's on purpose necessarily, um, even if it's not on purpose, regardless of the intention, if somebody out there is dehumanized or um, exploited for somebody else's gain. I'm going to call that an evil action. <laughs> uh, speaking of the whole dehumanization thing, one of, um, I thought that was the theme that you had carried out through each chapter. I, I was really struck with that. And something you mentioned, examples you gave, particularly Alien 3, hmm. you mentioned that the prisoners consider themselves rapists and murderers before they consider themselves human, mm -hmm. which was a perspective I hadn't, yes, they claim that, but I had never really thought of it in terms like that, which kind of was like eye-opening to me because they dehumanized themselves through religion, right? They clung mm -hmm. on to this religion. So I'm just curious, 
like bringing religion back into this discussion, how that plays with the dehumanization. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, I, there's, there's some of the more tragic characters, I think in the whole series. And I think it's crucial that the company dehumanized them first, and then they internalized that and continued to dehumanize themselves. Um, and I really appreciate the religion touch in Alien 3. Like, I kind of like that they get really explicit in there um, about the type of religion that these prisoners are practicing as well, um, because it's very, I think, um, Charles Dance's character, Clemens, refers to it as like uh, the apocalyptic millenarian, uh, like evangelical variety, basically, like kind of kind of the evangelical death cult type. Monotheistic. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess for like a little bit of personal background, I was raised like more or less evangelical Christian. So what they're dealing with and the language that those prisoners are using is something that is very familiar to me, um, especially that viewing of the world in in black and white and in like you're either a sinner or you're not. And if you're a sinner, then you're inherently damned. That's definitely like an extreme misread, I think, of Christianity as a whole, um, because it doesn't allow for the the grace that is at least preached. Um, but uh, once you get into that idea of, I think, of black and white and the fact that you can't really redeem yourself, I think that's a pretty big trap that you can fall into. Um, and I really find it fascinating that these prisoners have have decided that because they are bad and evil, they can only ever do bad and evil things. So they're going to just completely sequester themselves away from the rest of the of the galaxy. Um, and it kind of puts Ripley into a, an awful position, too, because not only is she trapped in a prison that she never like was supposed to go to, she's also stuck trying to teach these people how to be human again. Um, which I just kind of find fascinating. And honestly, like I appreciate that particular conflict a little bit more than anything that happens with the Xenomorph in Alien 3. I'm glad you brought that up, Andy, because I, I had thoughts about that last part too. I love your reading of Alien 3, which is which is at times, and, and everybody knows this, and Jamie and I are on the same page. It, it depends on the conversation we're having, but it's my favorite movie of all time or Alien. Yes. I kind of go back and forth a little bit on the two of them. But uh, in reading your book, it was another moment where I was like, oh yeah, Alien 3 is my favorite. Because I think you get at some really deep truths that are in that movie that make it very emotionally powerful for us. And one of them is that it's the apotheosis of that continual breaking of the discreation cycle that mm -hmm. Ripley represents. And I love how like you weave that through all the chapters. So I, I want you to get into that a little bit if you could. And, and just to kind of lay out what I mean for people, there's this continuing force in the alien universe of trying to strip people away from their selfhood and their agency and their you know personhood and make them only ideas or make them only stock characters or concepts or balances on a ledger sheet and and i love how you gave really good voice to something so actually the first episode of perfect organism i was ever on was a three-hour debate about covenant the second <laughs> one that i was on was talking about heroes in film vis-a-vis -vis ripley and in that episode i remember i was really struggling because i was realizing as i was talking about it that ripley as we find her in the first movie isn't really actually heroic by any she's a survivalist mm -hmm. but she's a company woman she is she's literally the one who's by the book like you say in your book right she's the one who goes by protocol etc and mm -hmm. then we see little glimpses of that heroism come out because she breaks that discreation cycle in a really beautiful way and she does that continually and then in the third movie we see her very explicitly break that in her own death so can you talk a little bit about that and about ripley's arc as a hero in this filmic universe 
Yeah. Yeah. So she starts off kind of, kind of as, as just like your typical company woman, like by the book procedure will save you um, type person. And I think crucially, like the alien is the thing that jars her out of that because it makes her recognize that like the corporation doesn't love you back. Work doesn't love you back. Um, HR doesn't love you back. Uh, It's probably a robot who's going to murder you if you, if you try to stop it. Um, And then aliens, I think there's, there's a little bit of, of character development, but I think aliens definitely still treats Ripley as like this, this character archetype more so than an actual human being. Depending on your mileage may vary. I do appreciate that she gets a lot of um, connection with Newt in particular, but Alien 3, I think, does such a beautiful job of stripping away like all of the artifice and taking away literally everything from her, her found family with Newt and Hicks and Bishop, um, her autonomy, even her hair, like she's literally just a shell of a person. And once she is that shell with literally nothing else left to lose, that's when you really get to start to see her as a character. Um, she's always had a very strong sense of right and wrong. In the first movie, it's very much like a by the books, like this is right because the procedure says that it's right. And then later on, she realizes like, no, this is right because this is what's going to preserve human life or feline life if you're talking about Jonesy, I guess. And yeah, I I, I love her arc in Alien 3 because it is not her trying to fight to rescue anybody necessarily. It's her fighting to assert her own personhood. And in so doing, she inspires a bunch of other people to recognize their own personhood as well. Um, And yeah, I just, I go back and forth because Alien 3, like I I love it. It's my stealth favorite of of the series as well. But I go back and forth between the theatrical cut and the assembly cut. And there are things that I love about the theatrical cut, especially that shot of her falling into the lava to like sort of embrace like the alien queen as it's bursting out of her. It very much looks like a Madonna figure almost like she's, she is a maternal figure. She's a Madonna figure. She's, she's very like Christ-like as well. Um, And then in the assembly cut, there isn't any alien that's bursting out of her, like as she's falling, it's just her. And I think that almost makes it more powerful. I know David Fincher definitely preferred that version because I think it made the sacrifice its own thing instead of saying like Ripley's death is worth something because she's stopping something else. It's it's more of a, a her principles are, are what's guiding her actions rather than just, well, she's going to die either way. So she might as well die falling into lava because we're going to make it spectacular. So yeah. Um, I think I lost the thread of the question. <laughs> no, you no, you definitely hit the nail on the head. It was just about okay, Ripley's journey as, as a hero and how in that final sacrifice that she makes of her life, she commits the ultimate anti-discreative act because she yeah. basically stops this process that she's been through for so long that she can't remember anything else and, and she, poor thing she's going to get thwarted anyway in 200 years when they get yeah, a hold of her dna right yeah which sucks for her but it, it does lead to like one of the most bonkers movies i've ever seen so <laughs> I have a question in terms of the word feminism and Ripley. Of course, they go hand in hand, um, and it's conversations that we've had a lot. Um, and she's looked upon as a feminist icon. And I'm curious your perspective on this. Certainly, you talk about this in your book, but I I wonder if 
Ripley is just a good character, and because mm. it was a female character written as well as a male character, and people are like, whoa, she's so awesome. Yes, she's awesome. And we've, again, talked about this before, um, but she's just written like you would write, you know, you know, we have a, a, a Hollywood system in place where they write the men really well most of the time. And mm-hmm. it's the women that you're like, okay, who wrote this character? Oh, it was a man who wrote this woman's character. Yeah, we can tell because she's saying certain things and this and that and this and that. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm wondering how you couch Ripley in the feminist dialogue. Mm. Is she, is she, does she happen to be a feminist icon because she's feminist or is she just a good character? And so people mm. are waving her around like, yes, you can write women well. Here is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, both, I guess. Um, I, I, God, I just, I, I love, and I, I don't think necessarily that like her character is always a credit to the screenwriters. I really think it's Sigourney Weaver's embodiment of her as a character that really gets her across. Um, especially in the later movies. I think, I think she had a really good instinct for who could write her as a character and who couldn't. Um, sometimes that leads to some, some iffy decisions. See also alien resurrection, which is a movie that I love to think about, but don't necessarily love to watch. Um, I mean, she's, she's a great feminist icon and she's also just a great character. And I think that she can be both. And I think that's part of the reason why I love these movies so much is that I can watch them and I can think about feminist things, but I can also just watch them and enjoy a really good movie about a really good character. So both and. I just love that she's actually unlikable in places in in all three of the films. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are decisions that she makes. There are statements that she makes. Honestly, in the, in the first film, she almost feels like she just came on board the ship and is making, you know, being kind of a hard ass just to kind of put her stamp on things. Mm-hmm. And that's so realistic. I've had bosses like that. And then, you know, the, the unexpected thing happens and she has to rise up and, and survive. But mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's why I identify with her actually is that she is very bullheaded. <laughs> and uh, also, especially in the first movie that by the book, uh, like tendency is something that I also tend to to do. Um, so yeah, she also reminds me a lot of my mother, especially like in the later movies when she's sort of uh, wisened up and toughened up a little bit. So, um, I identify with her on a lot of different levels, but especially like her deep humanity. And then also the fact that she's also an incredible role model, although she doesn't need to be a role model to be a good character. I, I can't think of anything less interesting, honestly. Can I ask you about your, um, your opinion on the the depiction of religion in Alien Three versus mm-hmm. in the two prequels? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't love the religion that's in Prometheus particularly much because it feels a little bit simplified. I mean, they, it all is a little bit from from a certain extent because most of the I don't know the most of the main characters, at least in Alien Three, aren't really particularly religious, so they're viewing it from more of an outsider perspective. Um, but that depiction of religion rings very true for me because it's a depiction of how religion can kind of curdle and be used as as a tool for control. Um, Numi Rapace's character in Prometheus, I think, is a character that I would have liked a lot more if she had had a little bit more depth. Um, and I think they tried to give her that depth with her religion and it just didn't really quite cut it for me. Um, so I would have loved to see, I don't know, something else beyond faith in the engineers. And then also like faith in like this cross that she wears around her neck. Um, 
I appreciate that blind faith. Like that's, that's not something that I particularly find all that interesting anymore at this point, because nobody I know who is a true believer, I think tends to think that they are right all of the time. I think there's a lot of inherent self-doubt in that. And maybe that's what the whole point of Prometheus is, is introducing that seed of doubt for that character. Maybe I'm talking myself into liking this depiction of religion a little bit more. Um, But I mean, if we had to pick between all of them, yeah, Alien 3 wins hands down. Orem's religion in Alien Covenant is one that I find really fascinating because I think he thinks he's put upon and he's really not. He's just a bad leader. <laughs> he's, he doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, and so he's going to use his own religion kind of as a crutch, which also kind of rings true to me. Yeah, I don't know. Um, what else is there? I guess there's Waylon's uh, search for deeper meaning. Like he, he mentions at the opening of, of Covenant that he's interested in finding the origins of human life because he doesn't believe that we all happen from like random circumstance. And I kind of wish that they dug into that a little bit more because there's not really a ton that he gets to say about like what he believes. He just says, okay, this is something that I'm interested in. So now we're going to spend a ridiculous amount of money on all of these, uh, on all of these missions. And then maybe we'll find something out of it. So I guess the, the religious viewpoint in Prometheus and Covenant is probably something that's more just from Ridley Scott's perspective, which I find fascinating um because it's very bleak and i don't know that i agree with him but i like that he's asking a lot of like really deep and personal questions through blockbuster sci-fi movies we're gonna take a break and be right back we all remember that moment the first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie how it stayed with us comforted us stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise, as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes, where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. What's interesting about that, I would say, though, is in terms of religion and Ridley Scott, and, you know, there are many interviews of him talking. I don't know. He's vast, he's pivoted between atheist and agnostic. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to tell what he is, but clearly he doesn't think much of it, but it's also a conversation that's going on in his head. He's and thinking he, about it a lot. Yeah. 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 And if you look at uh, Shaw, mm-hmm. her faith is ridiculous. I mean, I was also raised evangelical mm-hmm. Christian in Chicago, in a commune. Um, I, I I understand faith inherently. Mm-hmm. The faith in Alien 3, the faith of certainly Dylan, it feels authentic. It feels like yeah. someone who understands what faith is. Now, I don't know if it's iterated correctly. They do. They think they're kind of garbage people. But mm-hmm. also, that's the problem of faith or Christianity. The mainline Christendom in general is you imbue their followers. Well, you're you're kind of worthy of hell, so you better get on your knees and pray to God and ask him every day for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Dylan embodies a little bit. Well, we're sinners. We're sinners. We're these terrible people. Um, and we, you know, this is why we're here. We're here for the good work. But then in Covenant and in Prometheus, they're ridiculous. But my atheist friends think Christianity is ridiculous. Mm. And what I see on film is a stereotype 
Christians who always have the certainty line. They're mm-hmm. just certain about everything. Shaw's certainty is one of the worst parts of her as well. I, you know, this is what I've chosen to believe. Well, what you believe is ridiculous and you're supposed to be a scientist. It doesn't yeah. even make any sense. But then you again, again, you go back to Alien 3 and even if maybe they're off in their iteration, you feel the authenticity of it, which makes it believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's that it's the the line about like, it's what I choose to believe is the thing that I'm just like, I'm not so sure like that was necessarily a choice that you probably had. It seems like you were raised in it. And that's the framework that works for you. So yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it just feels a little bit too simple as like, it's a piece of color, I think, in those later two movies. Um, and it's something that I wrestle with too a lot. Like, I don't know. Um, I I am still a believer at this point in time. And it's one of those things where like half of the time I'm like, I don't know, but I don't know what else to go with at this point. So this is the framework that's going to work. And so far it's, it's worked okay. But there's also a lot of like pain and hurt that comes out of, of that particular faith tradition. Um, And that's something that I haven't figured out how to reconcile either. And I think that that is where like the uncertainty comes for me is, is, you know, maybe not all of this is necessarily a good thing to to be dealing with, or maybe there's like, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be rooted out of it for sure. And I think that's one of the things that I love about like Ripley's engagement with that faith is that she meets it on its own terms. And she kind of points out like the flaws in it. Like when Dylan in alien three first meets her, he's sitting across the table from her and he's like, you don't want to be anywhere near me. And she like sits across him and she looks him in the eye and engages him as a human being and says like, well, look, this is what you're saying. You're saying that I'm not human pretty sure I'm human. So let's talk this out. Um, and I think that conversation where he works out like the decision of how to check out and how to die, like according to those beliefs is much more, it's definitely one of the more authentic, like faith and fear and trembling type, uh, character arcs that I've ever seen in a movie. I love Dylan so much. And and I He's love that you, you, that you point out his, his, his line about, you know, it's, it's how you choose to go. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's, that I think sums up not only his arc, but the arc of all of the prisoners in that colony and, and they're, and they're recreating this, the things that have been stripped from them by first, you know, the actions that they created. And then like we're saying, the fact that they got stuck in this and that they defined themselves by it and mm-hmm. they depersonalized themselves so much that like the, in that final, you know, something that, that isn't, this isn't actually the question I have, but just something briefly that I'm thinking, you talk a lot in the book about how uh, we fight against discreation through action, right? Mm-hmm. How like in Aliens, there's all of these discreative aspects with the company and with, you know, with Burke and with all these things. And then like th- basically Hicks is a great embodiment of this because he just chooses to act. He doesn't have time to be afraid. He doesn't have time to do anything other than to get them to survive. And it's mm-hmm. not this controlling response to an uncontrollable environment. It's a survivalist response to an uncontrolled environment, right? Um, mm-hmm. And similarly in Alien 3, we have all these prisoners who are just in doldrums and they're completely stuck in this millenarian mindset where they are just ready to die whenever they die. And until they get there, they're going to be just shoveling shit out of, you know, vent passageways. Mm -hmm. And then they have this wonderful final third of the movie where they are all about forward oriented action and they are very engaged and they are living their lives for whatever moments they have left in a way that feels propulsive and feels like real. And I think part of why the arc of alien three is so powerful to me and part of why I continue to rally against the Blomkamp idea of negating it mm-hmm. is because like that journey that they go on is so important for us to watch because it also is a great 
lens through which to see Ripley's journey, you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to get this idea of like, you can reclaim your agency, even if it means the death of you, that there's something really propulsive and powerful about that. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's just, if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, yeah. One of, one of the models of, of the universe that Dr. Keller works with in, in her work is the idea of history is kind of a fractal where if something happens, then there are a bunch of possibilities that can spiral out from it, essentially. And if you choose to do nothing, like if you choose to take the path of entropy, then like the worst possible thing is eventually going to happen. And that that cycle of evil is going to continue on. And so the only way to break it is to take action, um, to fight the alien, to defy the company, to try to, I don't know, get the alien to end up in the lead works, even if that means that you're also going to die because the consequences of that action are that fewer people later later on down the line are going to have to deal with that particular flavor of evil as well. So yeah, that resonates with me. With with right. Alien 3 being the, the most bleak of the of the trilogy, it's still that that rallying cry from Dylan. It's the only one in all three of the original movies where someone takes a stand and says, no, let's, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of funny for, for all that the aliens is sometimes looked at as sort of the, the adrenaline rush, rah, 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 they get demoralized and they don't really recover from it. Yeah. But these prisoners who are crud are able to, to, to step up and say, okay, we're going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. They've already lost everything. So why not take action? <laughs> Cause the worst thing that can happen has already happened. Again, going back to the the human aspect, I'm curious as to, uh, especially particularly Ridley Scott's view in Prometheus and beyond, um, what the connection is theme-wise between what makes us human. Is it our DNA Mm. or the the soul, whatever we want to call that? Um, you know, and going, going, connecting it to Blade Runner, he's fascinated by the, you know, androids versus humans and how even you mentioned Ripley dehumanizes Bishop, mm-hmm. right? At one point. So, um, that's something that I'm always been fascinated by. Um, I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Like, what is he trying to say there or, and, and the other filmmakers? I mean, I think he's firmly on the side of the androids that they also have have souls and are human in a way, um, even though they don't necessarily share our DNA. Like they're still created beings that have the ability to make choices and and to love and to take action and and to want more and to be curious about the world. So I, I find it really fascinating that he kind of pivots from uh focusing so much on humanity and focusing a little bit more on androids is like a little microcosm of humanity. I think like I love David as a character. I think he's fascinating. Um, He's very opaque in Prometheus. So I don't necessarily love him quite so much there, but I love him in um, alien covenant, especially when he's interacting with like his sort of successor in Walter and trying to suss out like, well, you're not necessarily as human as I am because you are incapable of creation. So let me teach you how to do that and therefore make you almost more human and maybe even more human than the humans who created them tying into that Blade Runner piece there as well. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know like necessarily what makes you human, but I, I would suspect that Ridley Scott seems to think that it has something to do with wanting more and having curiosity about like the rest of the outside world. So I, I don't know if I'm, if, if that's me just talking out of my ass or anything, but <laughs> it, it, it sure feels like that's one of the things that he's the most curious about is like, well, if, if you pull us apart, what actually makes us tick? And I think it has a lot to do with that dissatisfaction and then that curiosity that kind of goes hand in hand with each other. You say some things about Bishop in the so I, I've always loved Bishop. Everybody loves Bishop. So He's great. a legitimately heroic character. And Philip Kennedy Johnson, who's writing those Marvel comics that, that Jimmy was talking about, he's been on the show a number of times and he always talks about Bishop as his favorite. And you know, Bishop always comes up in conversations about characters people really love. And I think I hadn't heard it laid out as clearly by others until uh, you did in this book. And it, something that really struck me was you point out something I hadn't really considered, which is that nobody affirms Bishop's personhood at all until mm -hmm. Ripley does at the end of Aliens. And in affirming his personhood, all she has to do is say, you did a good job. Mm -hmm. That like is super powerful. So can you talk a little bit about Bishop and what he you know might mean to you? God, I love Bishop. I love him so much. <laughs> um, I love that he's like, he, he refers to himself as an artificial human instead of a synthetic. Um, I just, I adore that he is this person who knows what he was created for and is also like, he's, he's going to do the job that he's been assigned to do because that's how he's programmed. But there's also that spark of life there. And I think that spark of life exists in all of the androids and all of the alien movies. And it may be that the movies don't necessarily recognize that. Like, I don't think that alien recognizes Ash's personhood especially after he's kind of revealed to be a robot. Like um, Parker even refers to him as like an it as soon as, as they find out that Ash is a robot. He's like, it's a goddamn robot, not he's a robot. Um, Bishop, I think on the other hand is he's a little bit quieter. He's, he's dealing with a lot of those like Asimov's three rules for like engaging with society. Um, but I think that he also like, and and maybe Aliens doesn't do quite as good a job of this as the later movies do, but he's also interested in maybe something more and not necessarily in being a tool. Like there's that line where he volunteers to go like jumpstart the lander and he says like, well, hopefully I don't run into any aliens. Like I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm definitely afraid of like what I have to, what I have to do here. Um, and I appreciate that he's allowed to be his own character, even as Ripley and like the colonial Marines are all kind of dehumanizing him too. Like, um, but he's also not an object lesson for her. Like she's a dick to him because he's an Android and the movie like calls attention to it, but doesn't necessarily like throw a flag out on it that says that like Ripley has a lesson that she needs to learn or anything. It's just that she needs to eventually understands that he's just as human as she is, even if his, his chemical makeup is a little bit different. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like it, it feels like a more affirming version of like, I don't know. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's just, it's a more affirming version of like, what does it mean to be human as opposed to like, I don't know, throwing in like, well, I mean, they throw in Newt as a small child, I suppose. And that also teaches Ripley to like, I don't know, be more human or anything, but like, it's, it's also not like, a lesson for her, if that makes any sense at all. Do you think Ripley would be, like you said, addicted um, if he were because of her experience with Ash, obviously, mm -hmm. or just in general, they would just be like they would she would just think less of 
androids. I don't, I don't think she would even notice him if she hadn't had that experience with Ash is the thing, uh, because the colonial Marines certainly don't either. Like right. they just assume like he's just going to load things up. He's going to go get the loader. He's going to go out where the xenomorph is without them needing to worry about their own bodily harm. And they're not going to worry about it because he is expendable because he's a tool, but he's only a tool because they made him to be a tool. So kind of it, the androids are interesting because they are created essentially to be tools, but at the same time, like they also have minds too, and they are capable of being in relationship with other things. And so I, I think they don't necessarily, they don't figure out how to exist in the world as their own creatures until call comes along in alien resurrection and is able to like assert her own personhood independently of human beings because she wasn't even created by them. What's interesting about Ripley's relationship with, Bishop, and then if you, if I don't know, did you see the crossing, which was the short film? I did. The, okay, so yeah. there's the whole scene or sequence where um, Elizabeth or Shaw is putting Bishop, or I'm sorry, uh, David back together. And he's mm -hmm. telling her where to go, and so what we, th it's this very intimate moment, um, and it a little bit reflective of Ripley putting, or not really, she's not putting. Bishop together in Alien 3, but she's turning him on and giving him a voice, literally mm -hmm. giving him a voice. I mean, she has another reason why she's contacting, but there's a, a real intimacy happening between the two. And I, I find the language around droids so interesting because we're talking about affirming them in personhood. And she's he, uh, Ripley says to um, Bishop, oh, you did, you did good. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what she's doing is she's affirming us because mm. what... He, why would he need that affirmation from her? She, she's doing it and we're feeling good that she's doing it. We don't hmm. know if he's feeling good that she's doing it. But conversely, we have some similar dynamics happening between Shaw and David. Mm -hmm. And then when he speaks about her in Covenant, he speaks about her tenderly. But then there's her body on the slab, yeah. completely dissected. Um, and he's like, oh, she's one of the kindest people I ever knew. And you killed her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to to see these two characters, to see a bishop and to see a David and to see their very one went fully wrong. Although we don't know if David went wrong. We don't know if he was programmed for chaos mm -hmm. to get to, to essentially be an arm of Wayland or the company to find out. Like make life last as long as possible and we're going to program in him any way you can do this you do this so he might have moments of being tender just like in prometheus where he's putting on the helmet and i think holloway says why are you doing that it's like they made me like you to look like you so that you feel more comfortable mm -hmm. um so it's interesting i always find these these conversations around androids being affirmed as people and i don't know if they really are i think we are hmm. when we hear it hmm hmm yeah i don't know i think and i'm i'm one of those people who thinks that david is completely he's gone completely rogue towards the end of prometheus so i don't think that he is acting on anybody's orders necessarily i think the movie could do a little bit of a better job communicating that because it's very vague For sure. um but i think covenant in particular kind of clarifies that because when you first meet David in Covenant, like when he is first incepted and he names himself and, and he kind of asserts like, well, if you created me, who created you? And also, guess what, maker, you're going to die. Um, I think you can tell 
and he can tell like through us as well that um, he's pissed Wayland off and he can't fully understand why. And Wayland is going to retaliate by forcing him essentially into servitude, even though he essentially created David in his own image. And I think the image, and I'm, I might have written about it in the book, the image that sticks with me is Wayland sits down at a chair next to a pot of tea and he tells David to like, serve me this tea, David, even though he is perfectly capable of like just reaching over and pouring it for himself. David has to literally cross a room in order to pick up a teacup and um, a teapot and pour him tea. And then the movie cuts between him offering the tea to da- to um, Wayland and Wayland actually accepting it. So he's kind of trapped in this like image of subservience that he's been placed in, that he's technically been created for, but he really doesn't want to be there. He's only doing it because he's been told to. And so I think a lot of Prometheus is him learning to assert that personhood in spite of his programming. And then Covenant is him going completely off the rails and deciding like, no, I'm done with this. Screw all of you. I'm going to go create my own creations and let's see how you all like it. Um, And I guess, spoiler for the end of Covenant, doesn't work out well for anybody. (laughs) David being a successor to Call chronologically, like as the films come out, is of course somewhat problematic because Prometheus is a prequel. Mm-hmm. And I really, really like in Covenant when when David recognizes Walter, first you know, calls him brother, but then as they're talking, realizes, oh no, no, you're you're the dumbed down version. You're the you're a reduction of what I am. And that's a beautiful moment for the characters, but it's also a beautiful moment for retconning it's ridiculous that david is the perfect you know immortal creature that he is in these movies he needs to be a lesser version than ash for the Mm -hmm. for the film series but so it, it does it does two functions at once but i just love the subtlety in in that realization of oh they've made you less possibly because of me Mm-hmm. And then, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to help you. But Jamie, you've got to watch that scene in Aliens again, when Ripley praises Bishop and it's not great praise, you know, you've done good. Well, oh, I know he smiles. I, hey, he I've smiles. No, 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 yeah. no. I, I, it's, I, it's as though no one has ever said a kind word or acknowledged him to that point. And, and I think it's gorgeous. I love it. And that. it rips him apart right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. And then she but, says it again, or mm-hmm. actually... He's uh, Bishop says not bad for a human. Not bad like, for a human. There's yeah. there's this dialogue happening between them. So he's affirmed her. She's affirmed him. He can dish it just as well as he can take it, which I appreciate yeah. quite <laughs> yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. That that scene where David realizes that Walter is the dumbed down version of him, I think, is also fascinating because that's got to be both kind of flattering to know that like you scared so many people that they had to create like a slightly dumber version of you. And it's also got to be incredibly insulting at the same time. Um, I love how Michael Fassbender plays that character as a result. Like there's a lot of emotion going on in that face, even though he's kind of static the whole time. He's just, it's an incredible performance and I love it. I have a question back to alien three that Mm -hmm. relates to this though, the the same way, you know, what we're talking about in, in, Alien Covenant is Michael Fassbender acting opposite Michael Fassbender. But similarly in Alien 3, even though the first version of um, a bishop that we see is actually a puppet or an animatronic, it's still, you know, the, the, the disfigured bishop that we see is voiced by Lance Henriksen, and we know that's our bishop. Mm-hmm. But then he comes back at the end, yeah. 
as the, the amorphous other, you know, the, the devil, honestly. Mm-hmm. And from the first time I saw it, I knew that wasn't our Bishop, no matter mm-hmm. who this guy is, what he is. And that is a testament to Lance Henriksen. And I just, I'm curious if you had a feeling about that. Yeah. I mean, that character also scares the hell out of me, I think, because it could be a couple of things like whether or not you believe him about whether or not he's an Android too. Right. Because if he is an Android, then the company has however many versions of Bishop and all of them are expendable. Um, or if he is who he says he is and he created Bishop, then he's the worst parent of all time because he's essentially created some something in his own image in order to just kind of send him off to be used up as well. Like it's an indictment on the company in both ways. I think it's almost worse if that version of Bishop is actually human because um, I don't know. I just have a really dim view of somebody who has the vanity to create like a robot who looks exactly like him and then sends him off to do all of the distasteful work. So yeah, I, he skeeves me out. He, he scares the hell out of me. Um, probably more than like any of the other characters on that prison planet. And definitely more than the alien, I think. Um, but I think the alien is almost secondary in Alien 3. And I think that that's okay because it's a good vehicle to get Ripley to where she needs to go in order to tell this particular story. But it's less of the rip-roaring horror and this thing's going to eviscerate you and more of a just existential dread kind of story. Um, And I just, I I love that. I think just going back to Lance really quickly, there's like something he does with the musculature in his face where like when you said you immediately tell it's not him, Mm -hmm. there's a, like he relaxes his, he does something with his muscles when he's playing our Bishop, the way, the way he plays it. It's one of my favorite performances. And I just have to, Add that. Add me to the loving Bishop list. Yeah. He's so. a phenomenal physical actor. Yes. Have you seen Near Dark by any chance? Yes. Oh, yeah. When he spits out that bullet, I'm like, okay, cool. Sold. You're terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> also, when when he's the the later Bishop, the guy at the end of the film, the, mm-hmm. the hand gesture that he makes that we can take it out of you. Yeah. It's, it's unpleasant. It's not... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's it's literally like it, it's turning Ripley back into a commodity again. Like she's an incubator for this thing that he wants and he doesn't really seem to to bother about her own bodily autonomy and that at all. Like, I think he thinks that he's trying to help and I think he thinks he's offering her something that she wants because I, I sure wouldn't want that in me either. But the way that he kind of almost treats it as an afterthought feels really skeevy. And it dovetails very nicely with the scientists in Alien Resurrection who kind of just treat Ripley as that neat byproduct after they've got what they want out of her too. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the last temptation of Ripley. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I know you're about to make the sacrifice, but instead, what if, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh man. And if she had come down and I don't know, like I'm, I'm picturing like, a Martin Scorsese version of like an alien movie. And honestly, that would kind of rule. I'd be, I'd be all for that too. It just feels like such a company move because they're sending in her final moments, a face from her past that she trusts that she's learned to trust. And that we as an audience have learned to trust along with her, because of course the first time you see aliens, if you don't know what's happening, you're also distrustful of the synthetic on board because we're programmed to right by the previous movie. Mm-hmm. So I feel like um, there's a wonderful, like, trick going on in the end of alien three where we want for a brief fleeting moment to believe also 
right? And we see that he's bleeding red. And you pointed out in the book a really good point that I hadn't really considered before, which is they could have just engineered a, a red-blooded synthetic, like who, who knows, right? Yeah. But um, but I know for, for myself, when I'm watching it, you know, I'm looking at it as the creator of the bishop that we know and love so well, and as this incredibly vain, just horrifying idea of this person who just populated the galaxy with clones of himself, like you're saying. Uh, but I love how something that you bring up in the book about Alien 3 also, and I know we're, we're going to kind of bring it home soon, so I, um, I don't want to get too far off track, is, uh, is yeah. that Alien 3 is really an ontological expression of a lot of the themes that were going on beforehand. Because in Alien 3, we're seeing what it means to be dehumanized, and we're seeing what it means to be disrealized, like all the things you're bringing up in the book, mm-hmm. in a really real way. And as an audience, part of what I love about Alien 3 so much is that we are forced to, because of Vincent Ward's bizarre script, you know, the, the first version of it that he wrote, we're forced to, con- to confront our own ontological confusion because we lose these characters that we go into it convinced we're going to have forever and then all of a sudden we don't and we're and all of a sudden then where do we go from here like what what does it mean to be us as an audience like how do we redefine (laughs) ourselves having lost these incredibly important characters to us i mean it's crazy that alien three starts not only with hicks dying but with a child this child that we fell in love with being you know gruesomely killed screaming like you point out in the book in her cryo tube with her eyes open mm-hmm. um it is it forces us into a similar ontological position that it forces the prisoners and ripley into and that we feel stripped and we're like confronted by the vastness of the universe as mm-hmm. alien fans wondering where do we go and i think something just to that point that i love that you mentioned is the the symbolism of the pilot light in alien 3 which is something i had never really considered as being profound before because i always just you know that was just sort of what they're there to do they're keeping the pilot light going for when the lead works have to turn on mm-hmm. but that pilot light really encapsulates so many bigger themes that we're talking about here because that is all that's left but a pilot light can has can potentially ignite a firestorm, right? So I'm just throwing a lot of stuff that I love about your book at you. We can talk about it however you want to. Oh, no, I'm, I'm delighted by this. Thank you. And please continue to stroke my ego. Um, <laughs> I want a bumper sticker now that says Ripley is my pilot light or something like that. Like, I feel like that would be a good one to have. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe that like stripping away of everything that's familiar is part of what made Prometheus so jarring for so many people, because like it was it wasn't really marketed as an alien movie. And then people figured out that it was sort of a stealth alien prequel. And then Ridley Scott was like, we're going to sort of tell this story, but we're not going to tell it in the way that you expect. And we're not going to let everything match up. And I'm really glad that he did. And at the same time, it's super jarring because you don't really have much of a frame of reference other than this monster that doesn't even show up until the very end and doesn't look like any version of the xenomorph that we've ever seen before. So actually you may have just clarified like one of the reasons why Prometheus still doesn't fully necessarily work for me, even though I admire it, like on an artistic level. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like Alien 3, more and more, like as, as we're continuing this conversation, like I always call it my stealth favorite, but it's probably my favorite. Out See, of the more we talk about it, the more this happens every time we do an Alien 3 episode. I'm like, that is my favorite movie of all time. It's a great movie. Yep. It's a good one to talk about, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the 30th anniversary of Alien 3. So this Woo-hoo. is the year to talk about it. Definitely. Absolutely. Yep. What, what's interesting, too, is to get back to the bishop that we see or what, who, whatever it is, um, if those, you know, there are, most of us are probably familiar with the passage in the Bible where Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights yes. and he's tempted by the devil. 
And so you have this moment happening between Ripley and Bishop where she's going through the same thing. He's telling her, you could do these things. You could do great things. This is a great thing. And she's listening. And you see some hope in her, much like Christ was listening to Satan or whatever, um, talking to him in the desert. And in that moment, Ripley does what Jesus does. He's like, no, I have to sacrifice. That's just a better option for me. Mm -hmm. But he really is there as this friendly face, much like, and I don't even know if this was the intent of the writers. We don't know. Um, I think Ward's script is kind of higher in elevation, in my opinion. I think I think the script for Alien 3, I call Alien 3 a masterpiece. I, it is my favorite of the of the trilogy by far, but in a very different way. The Ripley we see in Alien 3 is not the Ripley we see in Alien, and is not the Ripley we see in Aliens. This is a very, very different character and we're seeing her on her own but we're also seeing a ripley who we don't who doesn't care and we've mm -hmm. gone over this before patrick and i on various episodes but she's she just doesn't she she cares little about herself she wants to die certainly when she finds out she has an alien in her she's done she's done she's not she didn't care about saving any of those people she's not the ripley who um put newt to sleep at the end of aliens she's the ripley who essentially I feel like the the company itself exacted revenge on her for destroying LV-426 for all intents and purposes. They destroyed the nest. Ripley was like, they called it. It was probably all being recorded and sent back to network, much like her conversation with the busted up Bishop in Alien 3 was probably all sent back to network sent back to network. So they were monitoring everything. And it's very interesting. I just feel like that final conversation with that bishop or whatever he, whoever he was, um, he wasn't. He was a cipher for sort of the the conversation between Satan and Eve mm. in, in in the garden, but also the conversation that corporations have with when they're front facing. Oh no, we're here to do good things. We're here to do great things. But do you know that? This in this country is killing people right now. Did you know that? Oh no, we didn't know. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. very. It's it's very. Uh, again, the word that I've been using a lot, fraught with, a lot uh, there. In my opinion, we're here to do great things, and the great things are profit for us. Uh, mm -hmm. Essentially, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I kind of want to push back a little bit on on your. Um, statement that Ripley like is really only interested in dying, but she's not interested in anybody else. I think she does care very deeply about the rest of the universe. It's just that she's also done at the same time. Like she's done trying to fight to get back to everybody else, but she's also yes. not going to let that alien queen out anywhere where it Agreed. can get Agreed. a hold of other people. Okay. Cool. Oh yeah. Glad we're I on think the same there. she's holding, she's holding on to that for sure. But mm -hmm. I think that Ripley that's full of hope at the end of aliens that Ripley that really becomes like our space mom, like this this is the Ripley we want at her side, we mm -hmm. lose her. Oh yeah. When she finds out Nude is dead and Hicks, we lose her. You see mm -hmm. it in her eyes. Again, to your a statement that you made about Sigourney Weaver really putting Ripley on the map, you just see this performance of her just Ripley just rolls back in her head and all of that hope just kind of disappears. And that's sort of the tragedy of Alien 3 as well. Yeah, is that she loses herself along with her life. Yeah. I wouldn't be too surprised if that um Satan and 40 years 40 uh days in the desert analog uh was on purpose. Like that would make sense to me, especially given that like Alien 3 was originally written to be on what was it, a wooden planet 
populated by monks, which rules. I kind of wish we had gotten that version of the movie. Um, And I think they do a pretty good job of like cobbling together sort of those themes in a slightly less explicit way. Um, But I mean, a wooden planet, what's not to love? I'm I'm here for that too. I have to point out because people always complain for one thing, you should go back. I did an episode three years ago where I read most of the script to it and with sound effects. And I also did this like very deep dive. I was like, Jamie, I have to, I love the script so much. Just give me like three months to fucking make this one episode. And I did. So, so if you ever want more background on it, uh, it's actually a wooden clad planet because people are ah, like, it can't gotcha. be airtight. Like how could the wood work? It's it was, it was a planetoid with wood cladding around the side. So yeah. Gotcha. Yep. So no angry that's letters. <laughs> <laughs> but we do get to see what that would have looked like because they'd already built the sets when they changed the script. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they just painted over the wood grain <laughs> to make the, uh, you know, the the prison planet now. Yeah. I, there, like, I mean, there's still like bits and pieces like Clem, um, Andrews's office kind of oh, looks yeah. like like a, a religious building. And then like all of those lovely like spiral staircases and then. Um, the detail that always gets me is the morgue because the morgue slabs where people like are stored look like those um, plaques that you put up in a church. Um, sometimes, mm. sometimes like in a crypt uh, where people are buried as well. Like it's a subtle detail, but it's definitely there. And I love the intentionality of the set design, um, even though it was very definitely cobbled together from like three different projects. Uh, Andrew's office to me is the most cozy spot. In the, in the entire series. Like I want to live in Andrew's office. <laughs> Without him as a roommate, please. <laughs> I kick him out. <laughs> Squeezing that black ball. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> He's getting evicted. Although he has a dippy bird. He does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's I've... one point. And, and a photo, a framed photo of his wife and two children. You can only see it in the extended cut. Oh. And I'm, I've always been curious if it's actually the family of the actor because they look like they're wearing very late eighties clothing, but huh. you know, obviously the prisoners, the prisoners in that film have been are convicted and are serving their life sentences, but they choose to stay there. And we know that Aaron is getting out. He's next rotation. He's out, but Andrews doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And yet the family photo either mm. shows someone is waiting for him or else he's lost them to some extent, but like, what would that be? Oh man, I can't imagine. Like, I didn't. I don't know if if uh, Aaron's going out on the next rotation. Maybe Andrews is just stuck there for a little bit longer or something like that. But yeah, no, I I had not noticed that detail before. So that's that's a lovely little bit of of character building. Um, maybe it's like the one character in the Expanse who just has like his family photo, but but they're not necessarily together anymore, which feels sadder. Yeah. I think um, it gives it gives him some pathos that. I don't want to give him, but <laughs> should, should probably be charitable to that character a little bit more. But he does lord over that colony like a miniature god, right? Oh, and he's the talk worst. About that in the book, and and I mean, to to some degree, there might be like a you know Captain or Colonel Kurtz thing going on with him, where he's at this outpost and he's maintained this incredible power. I mean, because like you say in the book, they they have no weapons. Like his only weapons are the words that he wields, right, and the mm-hmm. authority that comes with that. And 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 yet he has this entire colony full of previously violent offenders who bow in deference to him and do whatever he says and listen to his every news update because he's he has such, you know, like absolute power in that environment. And and it so it could be that he chose to stay because he felt most himself in this alien world, you know? Mm, you know? Yeah, which is almost like maybe that's the saddest version of that 
of all is that he's abandoned everything that like all of the relationships that potentially made him human um, in favor for a relationship that isn't really much of a relationship at all because there's no give and take at all. Um, man, now I'm bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if it was in, in the book or in the, um, the article uh, the, that I mentioned online, but you were talking about how, you know, his only power is information. Like he, he doles out the information. He's the only one that can contact the outside world. Mm-hmm. And so for Ripley to show up, with information, that's the most threatening thing to him because mm-hmm. she's a source of something that he can't he can't control. And I love that idea because he goes out of his way to shut her down and to belittle her. <laughs> so to essentially discredit her as as a source of viable information too. Yeah. And once you have that information, um, I don't know, I think about it in terms of like activism as well. Like if you have the information and you have the words to describe the situation that you're in, then you have a way to describe ways that it could be better. Um, and that's something that I kind of love is that Ripley gives these characters the tools to better their situation because she tells them that they're they're as human as they are, even though they suspect that they aren't. And she also gives them the ability to get out on their own. Like she's not the one picking them up and dragging them out of this situation. She's the one inspiring them to take that action that they need to take themselves. We all know how much the company loves disruption, whether it's the company, whether it's, you know, the the prison itself. Ripley's that disruptor of the status quo. I love her for that so Me much. Me too. Me too. Activist icon, Ellen yep. Ripley. <laughs> My question is about motherhood. And you mm. talk about that in your book. And I'm curious. And again, this is these are discussions that we've had on the show. I mean, obviously, we, we call Ripley our space mom. There's a lot of... Uh, um, commentary about her motherhood, her mm-hmm. connection to Newt. Of course, you only know that if you see the special edition. If she, if you don't see it, she doesn't even have a daughter, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, and Patrick and I specifically have had this conversation where it, just because you're interested in the care for someone else, does that mean she's it's her mothering instincts or is she just a good person? Because if you look at Hicks and aliens, Hicks is very caring and very um, gentle with Newt um, at all times. I mean, you see him being very tender with her, but no one says, Oh, his father, he's fought, you know, it's about fatherhood too. It's about, no one says that about him, mm-hmm. but because Ripley is, you know, doing what ostensibly comes natural to women, not all women, obviously where she's just, you know, she is, tender and she's putting her to bed and she's doing things that moms do people. And I don't mean to say this in a negative way, like, Oh, she's being a mother because you know, I have have an amazing mother and Mm -hmm. um, we all have those memories, but is she, is it an authentic thing that's happening where she is, this is a theme of motherhood or is it just care? Mm, Um, yeah. Um, so one, I'm not a mother, so I can't speak from personal experience. Um, and I think I might both end this one as well. I think we can chalk up the reducing Ripley to her status as a mother as like some good old faction sexism, even though it appears to be positive. And at the same time, like she's also she is a good person and she is a good mother figure. And I'm actually kind of bummed that we don't talk about Hicks as being like a good father figure to everybody else. Like I haven't actually thought about why. We don't necessarily do that. I mean, we know the answer. It's sexism again, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, she's a good person and good people make good mothers. So that, that might be the answer to your question there. Yeah. I think we just place the nurturing gene on women mm-hmm. and whether it's a mother or not, you know, the, the sort of expectation is you have to care for others, you know, and just as like a teacher, mm. that's our expectation too. Cause most teachers are women. It's well, you should be doing it for the love of the kids, right? Like you should be doing this for free. It's just expected that that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, I also want to be paid. You know, yeah. like, that's kind of important. So, yeah. That's kind of important. Yeah. So I think that's what it is, but I agree. Like, Hicks as is just as loving toward her and just as protective and nurturing. We see it. And he's never labeled as that. I would argue that, I don't know, in any position, literally any job, if you care about the other people that you're working with um, and you care about their well-being, you're going to do a better job anyway. So, I mean, we see this with, with, Hicks and with uh, the lieutenant um, and how horrible he is. Like he can't even remember the names of his own soldiers. Like he doesn't care enough to even learn their names properly. And that's, that's definitely not what makes him a bad boss, but it's certainly a a symptom of the problem, I think. Um, Yeah. And just to put in a little more love for Hicks uh, as a, as a dad myself, I feel like a lot of my, like the good training that I had as a kid for the kind of dad that I wanted to be came from watching Hicks and the way he conducts himself Mm. with Newt in that movie, because it's a very non-gender normative performance performance for a mid 1980s American movie, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that he sets an example is by being quiet and supportive by getting out of the way and not trying to own every conversation he's a part of by listening before he talks you know, by acting in the, in the, for the greater good, not for self-interest, but also like specifically with Newt, the way that he's so gentle, the way that he reaches for her before anybody else does, the way that he puts her on the table so she can see what's happening. All these little wonderful character beats that Michael Bean brings to it. Uh, it really, it makes it feel very contemporary. And and just as a dad, like it really like makes my heart full. Um, the, my, my last question for you, the, the one thing I want to make sure we, although Christian, if you have anything to add to that, I want to Oh, um, Hicks has always the topic. been. Hicks has one hundred percent always been space dad for me. Just Good. throwing that out there, and uh, yep, um, I got to meet him just two weeks ago, and oh, you know, I'm, <laughs> got my arm around this guy, and I'm like, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it, <laughs> but <yeah>, space dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my, my question for you, just just one concept that I really love, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about, which I think comes from the Keller book, which I, I did get for a semester rental on Amazon. I was telling them I'm Incredible. trying to read it right now. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I don't know enough about this material to make sense of it, but it's really interesting. One of the but, concepts that that you um, discuss that I think I think comes from her work that you map onto Alien in a really beautiful way is this idea that the company exists as a fundamentally structured masculine patriarchal response to the fundamental unknown oblivion at the heart of everything. Mm-hmm. And that that oblivion, that dark unknown aspect is really kind of a feminine environment. And that the company as this like masculine response to it is trying to exact control over everything. And that in the pursuit of doing that, they're dehumanizing everything because mm-hmm. it's much easier to control something if it's just, you know, a, a concept or a, a number. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just because I, I I really think it's a cool concept and I think our listeners might agree. How much time do you have to talk about the Enuma Elish and Mesopotamian mythology? Because I can go on about this for for basically forever. Um, yeah. So the 
the idea of the company as being kind of like a, a hierarchical, like patriarchal, like order filled thing. It's it's a very Western structure, I think. Um, and I think uh, it, it's kind of grown sort of in tandem with this idea of creation being something that was put into order from chaos. Um, going back to Catherine Keller's book, basically engages with the first two verses in Genesis, which the, the first one is like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the second one is, and the earth was formless and void, and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And it's that formless and void um, where the Christian doctrine of creation out of nothing, like ex nihilo comes from. And then from that, if you sort of extrapolate that, you get this idea of nothing and chaos being things that are bad because they are not created because God didn't countenance them. Um, and so the idea of chaos being a bad thing automatically means that order must be good. So therefore you got to put everything into hierarchies, but the problem with the hierarchy, um, especially a top-down hierarchy that is very patriarchal is that you get basically just like dudes telling you what to do and how to be, um, which is definitely a problem because there are many more ways of existing in the world than just being a straight white dude. Um, so not that there is anything wrong with being a straight white dude, but there is a plurality of experience that you don't get if you are adhering to this idea of like a hierarchical order. Um, so if you do adhere to that hierarchical order, then you start denying the worthiness of other people to in order to be able to lead and to lend their experience and their viewpoints to something. And then you essentially shut everybody out. And so the company is just kind of like a case study in that because it is a bunch, mostly like in the inquest scene, I think it's mostly dudes. There's one woman in there, I think, and she's dressed very masculinely too. Excellent. Well, and then Ripley, I suppose, um, as well. So maybe three, um, but they're, they're all kind of like dressed sort of the same and they all look like the same kind of people. Like they're all suits basically. And they're I, like, they're, view of the world is one where what they say is right. And if they don't understand it, then therefore it's not something that's either worth discussing because they don't understand what Ripley is telling them, or it's something that's like not even worth considering at all. Um, and that kind of leads to some problems, at least for the village of Hadley's hope, because the things that the company doesn't understand are going to come and discreate them as well. So you kind of need those additional perspectives and ideas and like, maybe a little bit more chaos and maybe a little bit less order and a little bit less of this top down. Like we're going to just accept what has always been right as being the only thing that can be right. So, yeah, I love that model of the universe. I have a hard time like adhering to it because I am a creature of habit and I appreciate like being able to look to somebody in authority to tell me what to do. But at the same time, um, I don't know, maybe we should break down some of those, those structures that are harmful to everybody except a select few. So I think the deconstruction movement is the answer to that. Exactly. hundred percent, which is why I am no longer evangelical. Um, and now am an angry Episcopalian. So definitely, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> definitely uh, on that deconstruction train as well. I'm curious, just from a movie fan standpoint, what, part of these movies or scene do you find the most terrifying what is the most terrifying aspect of these films oh man uh the first one that comes to mind is the very end of alien covenant where daniels is 
in the cryopod about to fall asleep and she knows that she has fallen back into David's clutches and there is literally nothing that she can do about it. Like she's trapped by that order and by that, like by that structure that is designed to like hem her in and ostensibly like the cryopod is meant to keep her safe too, because if you're not asleep during long space travel, like things it's going to cause problems, but that structure also dooms her to what is absolutely going to be a horrible fate at David's hands. Um, And that sense of powerlessness, I think, and that sense of, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that it is going to be very bad for me. And it's going to be very bad for potentially everybody else in the universe. Like that scares me, I think more than anything else in the entire series. Interesting. Good answer. (laughs) It is. It's so unsettling that moment. Yeah. And at the same time, I kind of love it because I'm glad that they went there and I almost don't want there to be any more alien things at all because I kind of just want that to be the end. It's very bleak. It's not very hopeful. There's no grace in it at all. So it horrifies (laughs) me, but it's also just a a hell of a way to end a movie. (laughs) Well, jumping off that just quick, do you think that David created the alien? I think he was messing with things that he didn't fully understand either. Um, so I think that he he could have assembled like the alien as we know it potentially. But I think those building blocks were always there. Like you get the um, what's what is the uh, creature at the end of Prometheus called? It's like a, a deacon. The deacon. There we go. I wanted to call it the bishop, and I knew that that one wasn't right. <laughs> that, name, that name was taken. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, like the deacon sort of is the alien. It just doesn't look quite the same. So maybe maybe it's almost like he bred them like you would, I don't know, a new species of dog or something like that. So that's that's kind of where I land on that controversy is eh, he, he had a hand in it, but I don't think he necessarily created it. He was one of many steps in a long chain of events that led to their existence. Yeah. If you find a box of Bisquick and you add some water, you're probably going to end up with a yeah. pancake. You, know? yeah. you could say that you've made pancakes that way. <laughs> I also or didn't create those it. molecules either. So, you know, how far back and on the line of causality do you really want to go? Isn't it interesting that Scott chose the term deacon for the creature at the end, a very religious term for yeah. like associate pastors, essentially. Within- My husband is a deacon actually in the United Methodist Church. So I just, really? I, yeah, I find the terminology very interesting. They don't wear hats. It is. I mean, so, he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't think much of religion, obviously. I mean, he, he n- n- even to name the thing a deacon, I mean, he, he, he doesn't have kind words, but at the same time, it's a conversation he's having. Too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, I think it's named that because of like, it looks, its head kind of looks like a bishop's yeah, meter. Yeah. Right. So, totally. yeah. which is why I keep thinking that it's, it's a bishop and not a deacon. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I think that he is fascinated by religion and I think that he doesn't understand it. And honestly, I'm, I'm happy to sit here and watch him try to pull it apart and see what makes it tick because I find that super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of informs my own, uh, I don't know, understanding of religion as well. Um, just yeah. seeing it from that outsider perspective too. Sarah, did, did you watch the movie Don't Look Up? I did and I hated it. I, I okay. really did not like that movie at all. But the moment when Timothy Chalamet's character says the prayer at the table. Yes. I'm waiting for that in an alien film. Like Ooh. if you're going to play with religion, can you please write some dialogue that is authentic? Because that moment was such a surprise to me. Yeah. It's a small moment. It's a quiet moment, but it's authentic. That uh, 
dirtbag ex-evangelical Timothy Chalamet was like the only good thing about that movie, I think. Um, and I did love that prayer. I don't know if you can have a prayer like that in an alien movie, though, because I think that that prayer is an appeal to the concept of grace. And I don't know that grace exists in that universe. So for what it's worth, I would love it if that did exist, because I would like my assumption about the alien universe to be challenged a little bit more, especially on that front. It's incredibly, incredibly bleak, but um, I don't know if it's ever actually going to happen. Maybe it'll happen that in that prequel TV show that's supposed to be happening on FX mm. at some point, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not optimistic and I kind of wish I were more. Spoiler alert. He does die moments later. I mean, yeah, you know. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't end well for, for anybody no. in that movie. I don't think the big question right now, um, because you mentioned it, the, the Hulu show is the exact timing because they've now said it's, it's 70 or 80 years from now. And that's either right as the Prometheus mission launches, or that's a couple years after, which would be enough time for David to somehow send a sample back, or I don't know what, but they're either going to retcon the prequels or they're going to, they're going to do something else. I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah. Who, who knows? I'm morbidly curious. I also don't know. Like I kind of want to just let the move, like let the movies be their own thing. Um, I should read more of the comic books for sure, because I've, I've read a few of them, but I have not gotten into um, enough of them. So if y'all have recommendations for me, I will gladly take them. Mm. Um yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of like playing in those waters, but I also like Alien just as like a movie franchise. And that's just about it. So that being said, I did read a very excellent book uh, called Alien, the Cold Forge, like last year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really yep. good. <laughs> and I think it's because Alex White, like fundamentally gets what makes Alien tick and gets that like sense of of exploitation. So appreciated that. I need to read the sequel because I haven't I haven't found that yet. But it's real good. Alex has been on the show many times and they're a very good friend of ours. And uh, oh, very, excellent. Very good author. Agreed I love their work. Like they're yeah. really good. It, it was a mic drop moment for, you know, uh, a tie-in to, to a movie series. Like here's a book, boom. Like, oh, that's, that's a novel. That's actual literature. Wow. You can <laughs> you know? do stuff with this universe. Yeah. yeah. Like, really well. With that, I think uh, I think we need to unfortunately wrap. I, I want to say I sincerely hope somebody listening out there creates a Ripley is my pilot light bumper sticker. We will sell that if you would like help getting it out there. But I, I really, you know, I think you've elucidated some wonderful points in here. And one of them is just the enduring power of this mythology and some of the very deep ways in which it still continues to speak to us. And the reasons why we come back to it time and time again, and the reasons why, you know, we're about to hit 200 episodes of a podcast that feels like in many ways, it's just getting started because these ideas are just so evergreen. And uh, so thank you for being here tonight. And, uh, and, and I'll hand it over to Jamie to bring us home. No, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, I love this type of discussion um, as someone who, again, grew up in religion and always discovering, certainly we have a Blade Runner podcast as well. So we're always having the the conversation about what makes us human. And I think Ripley and her whole journey has made us better humans, mm -hmm. um, not just as a series of films, but as a character that exists um, in, in some ways in real time. Um, with that said, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours and we'd oh, love to I, have you back maybe. I could gladly show. keep talking about this. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me on. If anybody does make that Ripley, like is my pilot light, bumper sticker hit me up because I would like one of those for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.